In 2008, a feud over money in Kansas City, Kansas turned deadly. The circumstantial evidence pointed in one direction and the forensic evidence in another. It would take over a decade, but the shocking truth eventually came out. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines and this week's episode. Just a heads up that I will be taking next week off. We do have the long Thanksgiving weekend here in the United States, which means my kids are also home and there's not a lot of time to get work done. But it's also because I am prepping for 12 days of Crimelines. The 12 Days of Crime Lines are 12 daily episodes of Crime Lines in December where I will bring you mostly cases that don't have enough information for a full Crime Lines episode. The bulk of them are listener requests. I'm not sure quite yet what the average length will be. I imagine anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes, and we'll kick it off on December 9th so that we end on a regular release day during the week of Christmas. That last episode will be full length, so it's kind of like a podcast advent calendar. But that's for December, and I have a lot of work to do between now and December 9th when this begins. But for now, let's get into today's episode, which was suggested by Tiffany. Thank you for sending it over because it really is unlike anything I've ever seen before. This story starts at some point before 2004 when Kathleen Schroll went to work for Patsy Van Vlack. The two had met at a VFW hall in Kansas City, Kansas, a few years earlier, and Patsy found that she started to need some help at home, first with a housekeeper, but then eventually an extra set of hands. Patsy was in poor health. She lived with her father, Olin Coons, who had Alzheimer's. Because Patsy was in poor health herself, caring for Olin was getting to be difficult to manage. So Kathleen was hired, like I said, a general housekeeper, but then also to help out a little bit with Olin. This was just a part-time position, though, because Kathleen, who was in her 40s at the time, still worked full-time at a credit union. Things with Kathleen looked like they were working out well, so much so that Patsy went to an attorney at one point to make Kathleen the beneficiary of her will and to give her power of attorney. However, Patsy never signed or returned any of the documents the attorney had drawn up. A year after this trip to the lawyer, Olin and Patsy ended up signing over their house to Kathleen. Kathleen's daughter, Blair, moved in at that point to help Olin and Patsy as well. Initially, no one really suspected anything odd about this caretaker situation. That was until February 2006, when Patsy was hospitalized and very ill. She asked for her attorney to come see her in the hospital. When he showed up, he asked her why she hadn't signed the will that he had already prepared for her. Patsy said that Kathleen had pressured her into giving her power of attorney and making her the sole beneficiary of her estate, but that wasn't what Patsy wanted. She said she didn't trust Kathleen after catching her pulling a fast one on her and Olin. There wasn't much more Patsy said about the situation, and then in March, Patsy died. Now, Patsy was not Olin Coons's only child. He did have another one. He had a son named Olin Coons Jr., who went by Pete. 
This family situation was actually a grandparent adoption. So in the reporting, you will see Olin described as Pete's father, and then other times you will see him referred to as his grandfather. Patsy was, in reality, Pete's biological mother, though he wasn't told that until much later in life. And it's really not relevant here. I'm only bringing it up because I know my audience, and I know you often look up cases that you hear to read up more about it yourself. And I just wanted to explain that discrepancy in the reporting. So Pete was in his 40s, and he lived about 20 to 30 minutes away from Olin in the Independence, Missouri area. He lived there with his wife and children. Pete and his wife, Dee, made numerous attempts to visit or talk to Olin and Patsy, but they would be intercepted by Kathleen. She told them that Olin had no interest in seeing Pete. And this estrangement was difficult on him, but Pete did have his own kids and he had work and he focused on that, reaching out to his father here and there without success. Cutting Pete off from the family was so complete that when Patsy died, Pete didn't know it. He also did not know the extent of Olin's dementia. In August 2006, Pete made yet another attempt to see his father by going over to his house unannounced. Kathleen answered the door and refused to let him in. Pete was frustrated at this point, and he was also suspicious. So he called the Kansas Department of Social and Rehabilitative Services, known as SRS. He wanted to make sure his father was okay, so he filed a complaint of elder abuse, which then triggered an investigation. And right around the time this investigation got started, someone else called the police concerned about Olin's welfare. This was someone at his bank who noticed odd activity on his accounts, and she worried the elderly man was being exploited. The employee, a woman named Teresa, called Olin and asked him to come into the bank. Of course, when he arrived, Kathleen was at his side. Teresa said she needed to speak with Olin privately, which Kathleen first said no. Teresa insisted, in multiple places, this has been characterized as an argument between the women, not some cordial back and forth. I think that's important to the tone here. It wasn't that Kathleen simply resisted and then relented. There was an argument, which Teresa eventually won. After speaking with Olin for a few minutes alone, Teresa could see the effects of Alzheimer's on his cognitive processes. She knew he was not in any place to make decisions for himself, so she froze all of his bank accounts and contacted the police. The process when you file a third-party complaint, whether it is to social services or to the police, doesn't always move as quickly as we would like. And that is what happened with Olin Kuntz's family. They decided to act a little quicker and pull a little covert action to see Olin. In mid-September, a friend and former co-worker of Olin's, a woman named Bonnie, showed up at the house and asked to see him. Kathleen wasn't there, but her daughter, Blair, who lived there, wouldn't let Bonnie in. In fairness to Blair, she did not know Bonnie and apparently didn't know a lot of the information that would soon come out. So Blair wouldn't let Bonnie in, but she did call Kathleen to come to the house and figure out what was going on. 
When Kathleen showed up, Bonnie was still out front, insisting she was going to see Olin. Bonnie told Kathleen that she was supposed to take Olin to see his brother, and that's why she was there. She said she would bring him for the visit and then write home after. Kathleen eventually said, okay, that's fine, and they brought Olin out to Bonnie's car. When Bonnie saw Olin, she was shocked at his condition. Instead of going to his brother's house, Bonnie called Pete, which was, as we know, the actual plan. She then took Olin to her house where her husband bathed him. They noted and documented bed sores and injuries. They notified the police and then brought Olin to live at Pete's house. Bonnie was not there to visit Olin that day. This was a rescue. The investigation into elder abuse continued, and it included the poor care that Bonnie witnessed, but it also included the financial exploitation angle that Teresa at the bank had witnessed. Over the course of the elder abuse investigation by SRS and the follow-up investigation done by the Wyandotte County Sheriff, it was discovered that Kathleen had run up thousands of dollars of credit card debt in Olin's name. Not just that, but looking over checks supposedly written by Olin, it looked like someone else, presumably Kathleen, had forged his signature. Not just from Olin's account, but also going back to Patsy's accounts when she was still alive. Most of the money, though, was taken after Patsy died and wasn't there to keep an eye on things. It actually started the very day of Patsy's death. That day, the day Patsy died, Kathleen cashed a $200 check made out to her with supposedly Patsy's signature on it. The next day, Olin took $5,000 out of his savings account. Two days after that, Olin supposedly wrote a check to Kathleen for $3,000. Five days after that, another check for $500. So within the first week or two after Patsy's death, nearly $9,000 was pulled from Olin and Patsy's bank accounts. While more than half of that was in cash and cannot be verified where it went, we do know that thousands of it did go to Kathleen in the form of checks. But the grand total taken from Olin's accounts was much more than that. In total, it's believed Kathleen drained Olin of $30,000. Also, the investigation found that a month and a half after Patsy died, the beneficiary on Olin's life insurance was changed on a line to Kathleen Schroll. Olin, an 85-year-old man with Alzheimer's and no computer or internet service at his house, clearly did not change it himself. The SRS findings were that Kathleen had exploited Olin and the case was sent to the Wyandotte County Sheriff's Office for suspicion of elder abuse. Though the house had been signed over to Kathleen while Patsy was still alive, with this SRS report, Pete was able to get the house back, forcing Kathleen and her daughter out. They also had to go take possession of Olin's vehicles, which were parked at Kathleen's house. Kathleen then hired an attorney in anticipation of criminal charges. Those charges did not come, but the threat of them was hanging over Kathleen's head. 
in January 2007, after about three and a half months of living with Pete and his family, Olin died at the age of 86. Left behind was the $46,000 life insurance policy, which Pete and Kathleen both filed claims for. Kathleen, who you would think would keep her head down and just be glad she wasn't going to jail, decided it was worth stirring the pot for $46,000. In favor of Kathleen's case, she did have proof she was the beneficiary, but on Pete's side, he had the SRS report that Kathleen had financially exploited Olin. The insurance company decided this wasn't their battle. They were going to have to pay it out no matter what. So they deposited it into an account and told the two claimants to go to court to duke it out. But ahead of trial, they were ordered to mediation, which was on the calendar for May 9th, 2008. On April 1st, Pete turned over discovery to Kathleen And in this was a handwriting expert's opinion that Kathleen had forged Olin's signature on over 100 checks. That same day, Pete also offered Kathleen a settlement. Now that she saw the case that he had against her, maybe she would be interested in taking around $11,000 from the life insurance, since there seemed to be a pretty good chance she would get nothing if they went to court. Pete was probably offering the settlement for the same reasons a lot of people settle cases. Even when they're in the right, he was cutting his losses. Court is stressful and it can be expensive. But figuring Kathleen literally stole thousands and thousands of dollars from Olin, money that Pete was due to inherit, offering over $11,000 to her seemed incredibly generous. But according to Kathleen, Pete wasn't actually feeling terribly generous, and especially not when he was outside the presence of lawyers. Kathleen told friends and family that Pete was practically harassing her at this point. Sometimes he would be threatening. Often he would be taunting. On April 5th, 2007, four days after the settlement offer, Kathleen told her coworkers that she ran into Pete at the gas station that morning, and he told her she wouldn't be spending any more of his father's money, and then he cursed at her. She took this statement to be vaguely threatening. She also told her attorney about this, as well as her daughter. Then on April 7th, just before 2.30 in the morning, Kathleen's mother, Elizabeth, woke up to the phone ringing. She saw on the caller ID that it was Kathleen's home number, so she answered it. Kathleen was clearly upset and said that Pete Coons was actually in her house at that moment. He had somehow gotten into the garage and taken their lawnmower. Then he threatened to kill Kathleen and her husband, Carl. Pete said he would cover his tracks and no one would ever connect him to the crime. Kathleen's mother, Elizabeth, who had just barely woken up to hear this story, asked Kathleen to repeat herself. Kathleen did. Pete was in the house threatening to kill her and Carl. Elizabeth asked if Kathleen had called the police, and she said no right as the phone disconnected. This call lasted around 40 to 45 seconds. Elizabeth then woke up her son, Randy, who lived with her, and told him what Kathleen had said. Randy then called 911. 
Randy told the dispatcher about Kathleen's call, and he said that Pete was breaking into Kathleen's house with a gun in his hand. Now, whether the gun detail actually came from Kathleen's call or not, we don't know, since that call wasn't recorded, and this was a game of telephone. Kathleen told Elizabeth, who told Randy, who told the dispatcher. Regardless, the family knew they needed to get the police to Kathleen's house ASAP. It took about 10 to 15 minutes for them to arrive if we start the clock at the time of Kathleen's call to Elizabeth. The police approached the house and found the front door was open, so they were able to walk right in. They then found 45-year-old Kathleen Schroll lying on her back in the living room, not too far from the entryway, dead from a gunshot wound to the back of her head. In the bedroom behind the living room, Kathleen's 64-year-old husband, Carl Schroll, was lying across the bed parallel to the pillows, so not the way you usually sleep, and he had his legs hanging over the edge of the bed. He had been shot twice in the torso. The covers had been pulled back on one side of the bed, so it was very possible that Carl had been asleep at one point and had gotten up before being shot. Carl also had a significant laceration to his head, so it appeared that he had also been struck at some point. The Emmy said that this wasn't a pistol whip, and there was nothing found at the scene that was the obvious cause of this injury. Also on the bed, one of the pillows had a hole in it and the stuffing was hanging out. The pillow was taken into evidence. There were no signs of this being a break-in. There were no signs of a robbery. Kathleen's purse was on the couch in plain sight. It was wide open. Carl's wallet and cash were in the bedroom, also visible. And on the tray by the front door were both Kathleen and Carl's cell phones, completely untouched. Another phone, a cordless phone, was near Kathleen's right foot, and a gun was left near her left foot. At the scene, not all of the responding officers knew about the phone call, or at least not the details in it. So one of them, a police sergeant who had only the crime scene as his source of information, told dispatch that it looked like a possible murder-suicide. Kathleen had killed Carl and then herself. But then Kathleen's family arrived at the house. This was when Elizabeth filled them in on the contents of the phone call. Kathleen said that someone was in the house threatening them just 10 to 15 minutes before she and Carl were found dead. Elizabeth told them about the previous harassment and the threats and about how Pete Koontz and Kathleen had an ongoing legal battle over an inheritance. The scene went from possible murder-suicide to double homicide very quickly with this new information. Officers went out to Pete's house and they staked it out. At around 7 a.m., Pete pulled his family's minivan away from the house to drive his two teen children to the bus stop. As they drove, a car in front of them stopped, and armed officers got out. Being held at gunpoint, more cars pulled up, and Pete and his kids were put in separate cars and taken to the station. 
Back home, Pete's family started worrying. It shouldn't have taken him more than a few minutes to do this drive, yet he didn't come back. One of Pete's older kids called the school to learn that her brother and sister never made it there that day. So now they were more panicked, sure that there had been some sort of accident or medical emergency. They drove around looking for Pete and the kids, imagining the worst, when they were actually at the station. The kids, ages 14 and 17, were then interviewed without a parent present about their father's whereabouts the night before. They were not brought home until the afternoon, which is when the family learned that Pete was going to be charged for murder. When the police went to speak with Pete in the interrogation room, he waived his Miranda rights and he agreed to talk. They asked him about how he knew Kathleen Schroll and they talked about the years-long situation with his father and his father's estate. Pete emphatically denied that he had anything to do with her death or Carl's and insisted he didn't have any motive. He wouldn't get any type of restitution for the money he said Kathleen stole if she was dead, and the court proceedings over the life insurance money would be delayed because now Kathleen's estate is suddenly a party in the case. With Kathleen dead, Pete was actually in a worse spot. Now, while Pete was being questioned, continued searches of the crime scene happened, as well as searches of his home and vehicle. The long and short of it is that no evidence was found in any location to tie Pete to the murder. There was no blood or DNA from Carl or Kathleen in his vehicle, house, or on any of his clothes. There was no gunshot residue. The lawnmower Kathleen claimed on that phone call that Pete stole wasn't in his van or at his house. And at the crime scene, nothing of Pete's was found there. His fingerprints and DNA were absent, including from the gun. Now, Kathleen's DNA was on the gun, including on the trigger. But if the shot was fired into her head at close range, maybe that's blowback. And let's pause to talk about the gun real quick. It was a revolver. The ballistics could not match the bullets fired to the gun because they were too mangled. But circumstantially speaking, it was probably the murder weapon. It was at the scene. It had the victim's DNA on it. The caliber of the bullets used in the gun was the same as the ones recovered at the scene. And this gun held five bullets. There was one live round in the gun and just the casings for the other four. Even though this left a missing bullet, with Carl shot twice and Kathleen shot once, the investigators were comfortable saying this was the murder weapon. A check of the serial number on the gun found that it had been reported as stolen eight years before in the year 2000. And the owner was Patsy Van Vlack, that is Pete's biological mother and the woman who hired Kathleen. She is one of the two people that connect Pete and Kathleen. It's not clear if the gun was stolen before or after Kathleen went to work for Patsy because the exact year she started coming by to do housework for them has not been reported. But they did know each other at that point. So both Pete and Kathleen would have had access to the house in order to steal the gun. 
However, there were people who said they had seen Kathleen with the gun previously and that she carried it in her purse at times. One of these people was Kathleen's daughter, Blair. She told police that Patsy had actually given the gun to Kathleen, or that's at least what Kathleen had told her. It seems unlikely, though, because Patsy did turn around and report it stolen to the police. So had she given it away, why would she have done that? But here we are eight years later, and this gun is at the murder scene. So if Pete committed these murders, he didn't bring a gun with him. So the thinking would be that he brought a different weapon, and very likely the one that caused the injury to Carl's head. At some point while in the house, he got into Kathleen's purse, which was open on the couch, and took her gun. Or possibly Kathleen went for her purse and pulled the gun out, and Pete disarmed her. That seemed a little unlikely because there were no signs of a struggle, and there were plenty of items for them to have bumped into as they fought over a gun, but... Almost anything is possible, and it is possible to disarm someone without much of a struggle, especially if you can overpower them. The theory continues that Pete then used the gun to kill Carl and Kathleen before he dropped it on the floor and fled the scene, but he did take whatever weapon he brought with him that he hit Carl with, with him when he ran. So the main issue here with this narrative that was forming is that there was no evidence any of it happened. Aside from the phone call from Kathleen to her mother telling her that Pete was in the house and threatening to kill them, there was nothing. But it was 10 to 15 minutes from that call until they were found dead. So what else could have possibly happened here? Pete was then charged with two counts of first-degree murder. And as the state prepared for trial, which would begin in early 2009, the investigators tried to bolster the case by proving at least that Pete had been harassing and threatening Kathleen leading up to the murders. But that proved to be a difficult task. For one thing, none of the witnesses saw or heard the harassment themselves. They only heard about it from Kathleen, who, investigators would learn, embellished the stories she told her family. For instance, Kathleen told her mother that she filed police reports about Pete stalking her. And she told her daughter she called the police repeatedly about this, but the police department had no records of any contact pertaining to these incidents of harassment. Kathleen went as far to tell her brother that she had a restraining order against Pete, which she didn't have. Now, just because she embellished the stories didn't make them completely untrue. She may have not gone to the police, but told her family she did because they pressured her to do it. And she's like, oh, I already did. It could also mean she's the type to exaggerate elements of her stories, which is another thing that would turn out to be true. Like one time she told her mother that she had to carry her gun because she transported money to the Federal Reserve in Kansas City, Missouri, as part of her job with the credit union. But that wasn't part of her job. She also told her daughter one time that she officially worked for a local elder care agency, and she didn't work for them. So yes, she provided care to Olin, but she didn't do it through an agency, like she said. So there were just the little lies that slipped into her stories, but that didn't always mean that her whole story was a lie. 
There was one instance Kathleen had told people about involving Pete that should have some evidence because it happened in a public place. The Saturday before the shootings, on her way to work, Kathleen went to Quick Trip and saw Pete as she walked in and he was walking out. Kathleen had initially told coworkers that day that it had happened before work. But then when she told the story to her daughter later, she said it happened after work, around 1 p.m., when she stopped at Quick Trip to get cigarettes and a lottery ticket. But in both versions, she said Pete threatened her and said she wouldn't be spending any more of his father's money. Fortunately, Quick Trip has lots of security cameras at their stores and their gas pumps, so the detectives watched the footage from that day to see if they could find the confrontation. And they found nothing. Not just no confrontation, they couldn't find Pete or Kathleen on the security footage at all, let alone being there at the same time. So the one almost verifiable story Kathleen told couldn't be verified. All the state had was the story that Pete was harassing Kathleen, which they couldn't prove, and the story Kathleen told her mother about Pete being in the house, which they also could not independently prove. Not only was there no forensic evidence, there were no witnesses who saw Pete or his van in the neighborhood that night. Even that phone call with Kathleen's mother, Elizabeth, was tricky. While Elizabeth's caller ID was verified as having received the call from Kathleen's landline, her phone record showed that she got a call from a different number at that time. But I will say there may have been an issue with their records that night overall because Randy's 911 call was also not listed in the phone records. Yet we have irrefutable evidence that call happened. But they only had Elizabeth's word that the call came from Kathleen and what Kathleen said in that call. Beyond that, Elizabeth's testimony would be that she didn't hear anything in the background, like Pete and Carl arguing. She did not hear the sounds of someone going through the house, and she did not hear any shots being fired. The state took this to trial in early 2009 with virtually no evidence. They did put witnesses on the stand who heard from Kathleen that Pete was stalking her, even though some of the details of those stories were provably untrue. They then put on forensic witnesses who basically testified about all of the evidence they collected and then admitted that none of it pointed at Pete, but it also didn't point at anyone else being in the house that night. The defense presented an alibi defense. On the night of the deaths, Pete's adult daughter Mariah had her boyfriend Ross over. Mariah and Ross testified that they were both awake and watching TV in the living room when Pete came out of his room around 2 a.m. to use the bathroom. Pete told them to not stay up much longer and went back into his room. Around 3 a.m., Ross was in bed in the room next to Pete's. He heard Pete coughing and typing on his computer. Since the murders happened pretty much at the midway point of these two moments, there was no way Pete could have slipped out, particularly since his minivan was blocked in. Pete had parked behind the house, and Ross had pulled into the driveway. To leave, Pete would have to move Ross's vehicle. Ross testified that the keys were in his pants pocket all night, 
and they were still there when Pete asked for them in the morning so he could move the vehicle and take his kids to school. The defense said there was no way Pete could have been there to commit this crime and that the evidence actually pointed at a reasonable alternative suspect. A name and a theory they got from the dispatch recordings from the night of the shooting. The defense proposed that the real murderer was Kathleen Schroll. Their theory was that in some Sherlockian plotline, Kathleen started telling people Pete was stalking and threatening her to set him up as the prime suspect for what she planned to be a murder-suicide. In their timeline of events, Kathleen first killed Carl before calling her mother to say that Pete was in the house. This was the final step in setting him up. They argued that Kathleen could have called 911 and likely would have if Pete was actually in the house. But had she called 911 directly, according to the defense, they may have gotten there too quickly. By calling her mother, she delayed the arrival of first responders, giving enough time for this phantom murderer to reasonably have gotten away. Kathleen then hung up the phone, dropped it, and shot herself towards the back of her head. This alternative theory, even though it's more supported by the forensic evidence than that this was a double homicide, was outrageous to Kathleen's daughter Blair. Carl had been her stepfather since she was a little girl, and she was very close to both Carl and her mother. They spent a lot of time together, and she knew Kathleen loved Carl very much. She could not imagine her loving, kind mother having murdered anyone, let alone the love of her life. The prosecution agreed and told the jury that this was as fictional of a scenario as it sounded and that Kathleen was not suicidal. It was clear, the assistant DA argued, that Carl was hit on the head and then shot before the gun was turned on Kathleen. She had been shot in the back of the head, something not impossible to have been self-inflicted, but certainly less likely. The jury took the case, and in a verdict I will never understand, they acquitted Pete Coons in the murder of Carl Schroll, but they convicted him in the murder of Kathleen Schroll. They determined there was not enough evidence to say Pete killed Carl, but there was enough evidence to say he killed Kathleen. How they even possibly separated the shootings enough to see them as unconnected events is something I do not get. Even if it isn't a legal conundrum to have a split verdict like this, it does defy logic. Okay, I am interrupting my own episode because after I had recorded this, sent it to the editor, gotten it back, posted it on Patreon, I had a thought. This split verdict didn't make sense. No one explained why. There was even a quote from an attorney saying they don't know why it came back a split verdict since it's nearly the same evidence. So what occurred to me is that perhaps it was a case of overcharging that they had charged Pete Coons with first-degree murder, but the jury may not have thought that Carl's murder was premeditated. Perhaps they thought it was second-degree murder. Maybe they thought Carl might have woken up and that Pete didn't intend to kill him when he got there. 
I don't know, because that doesn't necessarily match the evidence from the phone call. So I think it's possible here that second-degree murder was not a charge that the jury was allowed to consider as a lesser-included offense. Therefore, they had no choice but to acquit. It would mean the jury was doing the right thing there. I would still need more information to understand their thinking on why the evidence didn't support first-degree with Carl if it did with Kathleen, but it does make the split verdict make a little bit more sense. It's not like they're saying they don't think Pete did it. Okay, so back to the episode as it was originally recorded. Pete was sentenced to 50 years to life for the one charge. Being that he was already in his early 50s at this point, it was essentially a life sentence. But Pete's conviction was very quickly overturned within months when the defense found that some evidence that had been turned over pretty last minute was actually very important. The state had done a forensic analysis of Pete's computer because part of his alibi was that he was on his computer all night. They found that Pete had logged in at 1.07 a.m. and again at 4.51 a.m. The prosecution argued that this information didn't really matter because it wasn't actually exculpatory. The murders happened around 2.30, so logging in outside of this immediate time frame didn't really change anything. But the problem here was actually created by the prosecution because they put a detective on the stand who said he went to Pete's house around 6 a.m. So it was after the deaths, but before Pete was arrested. He claimed he walked around the house and Pete's van was not there, which meant he could have gotten out of the driveway that night. His alibi was that he couldn't have left his house. Now, signing in at nearly 5 a.m. makes it sound like Pete was very, very likely home at the same time this detective claimed his van wasn't. The detective was mistaken, and his testimony that shot down Pete's alibi would have been in question if the defense had this login information. So Pete did get a new trial. Since he had been acquitted in the murder of Carl Schroll, that verdict stood because, like we know very well here, double jeopardy. The second trial then was just for Kathleen's murder, and it took place in December 2009. They were able to go back to trial so quickly because Pete had the same attorney, it was the same assistant district attorney trying the case, and even the same trial judge. So aside from the computer evidence that was the whole reason they were getting a new trial, the two sides agreed that all the other evidentiary hearings from the first trial were going to go into the second trial. That meant fewer pretrial hurdles, and the new trial started in just six months after the ruling to get a new trial. The second trial was mostly the same as the first, except there was a new witness for the prosecution, Robert Rupert, jailhouse informant. There are all the usual reasons to discount Robert Rupert's claims that Pete Coons confessed to him. He had motivation to lie for consideration in his own case. He later said the prosecutor promised to intercede on his behalf with the Department of Corrections. So we have the usual motivations to testify against someone. But on top of our usual reasons, Robert had only been in a cell with Pete for around a week. 
Within a week, Pete felt comfortable enough to confess in detail to Robert Rupert when he hadn't confessed to a single solitary soul otherwise. And those details, they weren't even possibly remotely true. According to Robert, Pete said he had crawled out of a window while his family slept and he drove his mail jeep to the Schroll's house. He then got rid of the jeep shortly after the murders. After killing Kathleen and Carl, Robert said Pete left the two victims side by side in the same room in a laundry or utility type room in the rear of the house. So let's go ahead and take those points one at a time. As for climbing out of a window, at the time of his arrest, Pete's jail intake medical exam noted that he was obese, he had a history of heart problems, he lost his breath walking across the room, and he had an irregular heartbeat. He had retired early for medical reasons. That's the man who supposedly shimmied out a window to go steal a lawnmower and murder two people. Next up is the Jeep Robert said Pete drove to the crime scene. Pete retired from the Postal Service already. The Jeep had been gone for a year at this point. Pete didn't even have access to it, and the person who bought it had his loan approval and payment information to prove when he bought it. And then we have the last point in the story. The couple was not found side by side, nor were they found in a utility-type room. They weren't even found in the same room. Aside from the names of the victims, very little of what Robert said was accurate. So we are to believe that Pete truthfully confessed to murder, but he completely lied about how he did it. So obviously, the state saw the issues with this, and they decided not to put Robert Rupert on the stand. Oh, sweet summer child who just believed that statement. Of course they put him on the stand. The credibility issues were four feet deep, and they put him on the stand anyway because they had so little else. That is how desperate this case was. The state's basic theory was that Pete snuck out a window and took a mail jeep that he didn't have access to. He then broke into Carl and Kathleen's house, leaving no evidence of a forced entry. He announced his plan to kill them like some movie villain at the climax of a movie. And then he subdued the couple, except for the time he allowed Kathleen free to make a nearly 45-second phone call. Pete then got the phone from Kathleen so quickly that her mother didn't even hear him approach and disconnected the call. After the line went dead, Pete then went back to Carl in the bedroom and killed him by shooting him twice. Then he went back to Kathleen, who was apparently just standing there, and shot her before dropping the gun and running out the front door. And Pete managed to do this without getting any blood on himself, which is really remarkable because the blood spatter from Kathleen's wound actually hit the ceiling, but somehow it missed Pete. And somewhere, somehow, in all of this, a fourth shot was fired and it magically disappeared. Prison informant Robert Rupert had some nonsensical story about how Pete 
fired the fourth shot outside of the house, but then the gun came from the house. So did Pete take the gun from the house, go outside, fire a shot, come back and kill them? Or did he kill them, run outside, fire a shot, and then go back in to drop the gun? Like, which one is it? Now, this missing bullet is a little confusing, but remember it because we're going to come back to it later. So trial number two was Robert Rupert's story that pretty much only got the names of the victims right and that phone call to Elizabeth. Now, let's take a little bit more of a critical look at this phone call than we took earlier. Elizabeth recalled that Kathleen said Pete was in the house and threatening to kill them. She didn't say he killed Carl. So at the time of the call, they were both alive. So Kathleen has a man in her house threatening to kill her and her husband. So what does she do? She grabs a phone, she stands six feet away from the front door, and called not 911, but her mother. Kathleen's cell phone, along with Carl's, sat on a table near the door. If she had time to get to the phone and talk for more than 40 seconds, she had time to grab a cell phone and dial 911 as she was heading out the door. We are to believe that Kathleen feared for her life Yet she stood in one spot near the door and called her mother. This phone call does not make any sense. It only makes sense if you assume it was a setup. And that is what the defense wanted the jury to believe. However, they did not. In a repeat of the first trial, Pete was found guilty of first-degree murder and was again sentenced to 50 years to life. Pete appealed, and in 2014, he did manage to get a new sentencing hearing due to a mistake in how the sentence was handed down. But any amount of time in prison for a crime you've been wrongfully convicted of is too much time. So Pete kept appealing. Then he learned in 2018 about a new program the new Wyandotte County, Kansas district attorney was working on a conviction integrity unit. It was announced that if anyone was wrongfully convicted or they believed their loved one was, they could apply to have the case reinvestigated. Pete's boss at the prison laundry heard about the program and believing wholeheartedly that Pete was innocent, he pushed him to apply. And so he did. Pete now had a dedicated appellate team He had help from the Midwest Innocence Project, and he had the Wyandotte District Attorney's Office, all taking a hard look at this case in 2019 and 2020. And so much came out that it made people's heads spin. This was not a case of the jury just getting it wrong. Shady, shady, shady is all I can say about this investigation and prosecution. I'll start by ending the suspense I know you're all feeling over the missing bullet. They found it in 2020. Now, if you remember way back to the beginning of this episode when we talked about the murder scene and they found a pillow near Carl's body with the stuffing coming out, guess where the bullet was? It was in that pillow. No one even looked at it. With all the forensic evidence they swabbed and tested, trying to find any trace of Pete's DNA anywhere— They never even looked at the pillow that had a hole in it, even though it was taken into evidence. What does this missing bullet mean? It means that Carl was never hit on the head to subdue him and then shot twice. The wound on his head was from the bullet grazing him as he laid in the bed 
and someone tried to shoot him, likely while he was asleep. The bullet ended up in the pillow. Carl woke up at this point, obviously, and moved, which left a small blood trail. He was then shot twice in the torso. This might not seem like it matters because Pete could have grazed him just as much as anyone else could have. However, the state claimed Pete brought a weapon into the house, but switched to the gun. The only evidence that he brought a weapon was the blow to Carl's head, but there wasn't a blow to his head, so there's no evidence anyone took another weapon into that house. If we remove the second weapon from the equation, we are now to believe a 300-pound man with a physical disability who lost his breath walking across the room showed up to murder two people with nothing but his bare hands. And another point, the bullet being found in the pillow shows that Carl was lying down when it was fired. There was a man in the house stealing stuff and threatening them, yet Carl was sleeping through it? Not just that, but Carl then had time to move in an attempt to save his life, and supposedly Pete fired two more times. The shooting actually took longer than first theorized, and Kathleen used absolutely none of that time to walk out the front door to get help. Now, the pillow wasn't the only piece of untested evidence, as this new investigation found. Swabs from Kathleen's hands had not been processed. When they were, the swab of her left hand tested positive for gunshot residue. Her left hand was the one closest to where the gun fell. The reinvestigation also learned that the medical examiner was not given all of the information from the scene prior to him ruling both deaths as homicides. They didn't tell him the gun was Kathleen's and that it was found near her body. They didn't give him photographs from the crime scene. And he didn't know about the missing bullet or that there was a pillow with a hole in it. They didn't tell him about Kathleen's financial situation, which they actually didn't tell the defense either. And we're going to get into that in a second. After the Emmy was finally given all of the information he should have been given at the start, he changed his findings in 2020. He ruled that this was a murder-suicide with Kathleen as the killer. In an interview with Dateline, you could tell how much it tore him up that he got this wrong and that he contributed to a man going to prison. But how was he to know? He couldn't trust the information he was given being given from the people he's supposed to be working with. Now, about those financial issues that the Emmy, the defense, and the jury never heard about, things were coming crashing down for Kathleen in a big, big way. And yet, in his closing statement, District Attorney Ed Brinkhart said there was no evidence that Kathleen had a reason to take her life. But that was a straight-up lie. Kathleen was, for one thing, drowning in debt. Her monthly minimum payments were more than she earned by hundreds of dollars every month. Beyond that, Kathleen had been embezzling from her job at the credit union. So let's just take a minute to appreciate that a woman accused of defrauding an elderly man out of tens of thousands of dollars kept her job at a credit union even after social services found she financially exploited Olin Coons. Now, this embezzlement started in February 2008, and it involved checks. 
When you deposit a check into your account, your bank generally credits you for the amount immediately, particularly if it's a small enough sum. But they don't actually have the money yet. They then contact the bank that issued the check, and that gets the money that they essentially fronted you. What Kathleen would do was take a check written from another bank and deposit the amount in her account rather than the intended account. Now, she would have gotten caught the first time she did this when the credit union went to the bank that issued the check and asked for the money, and then the names and the account numbers aren't lining up. So Kathleen had to go a step farther to cover this up. She would steal the physical check out of the queue and discard it, so it never went back to the issuing bank. This also meant that when the person who thought they were getting the money didn't get it in their account, they would call and the bank would say the check was never cashed and a new one would just be issued. So no one would complain because everyone had their money everyone except the credit union that Kathleen worked for. This was not the smartest of all embezzlement schemes because there was only so long this would work. Kathleen did try to cover it up. She would put fake entries in the credit union's electronic ledger so that there were no glaring errors at first glance, but the numbers still didn't add up. It's not like the credit union only took Kathleen's word for how much money she processed. They had audits and safety measures to keep something like this from happening, and her books weren't adding up. It was the end of February, the first time they were off, and then at the end of March, her books were off again. She told her boss she didn't know why, but he had to prepare the end-of-quarter report, so he needed to get it figured out. He didn't immediately suspect her of stealing anything, but he did say they were going to sit down on April 7th to go over it and find the issue. That meeting never happened because Kathleen died hours before. The credit union then discovered Kathleen had embezzled $11,000 in 60 days. Kathleen also had another scheme that was uncovered. She would write $100 checks from her overdrawn bank account to the VFW, but it's believed she cashed them herself and then let the checks bounce. She basically was using her bank account as an ATM when there wasn't enough money in there. All of this was about to be uncovered less than a week after Pete informed her that he would also be able to prove that she forged his father's signature on checks. So she knew very quickly multiple crimes were being uncovered. Now, Kathleen hadn't been arrested for any of the crimes against Olin Coons, at least not yet, but she was certainly going to go to jail over the money stolen from the credit union. There's no defense there. Now, with Olin, she could say the money was a gift, but credit unions don't gift you their money. So when ADA Ed Braincart said Kathleen had no reason to want to take her own life, well, going to prison, being left bankrupt, making her retired husband face homelessness, being exposed as a thief, those all sound like possible reasons. And now look, I have grown and learned a lot since starting podcasting. I used to engage in conversations and speculation on unsolved crimes, and I would say things like, but they had everything to live for, so they must not have taken their own life. That is ignorant, and I know that now. So I'm definitely not sitting here saying that this or that is or is not a reason because suicide and suicidal ideation are not about what I think is worth living for. And that's not the conversation I'm trying to have right now. 
The point in discussing this is that Brinkhart told the jury that there was no reason for Kathleen to want to take her life, and he did not give the defense information on things that may have been major stressors for her. He withheld information and then told the jury that information did not exist. And that's not the only fib he told the jury. In his opening statement, Braincard addressed the elder abuse accusations head-on. We've talked about this in other cases, where the victim is considered a quote-unquote unsympathetic victim. The prosecution has to face it head-on and in some way mitigate it. Braincart said, and I quote, whether Olin was happy to provide a few extra gifts to Kathleen or whether she was taking them without permission was an issue that defied clear proof for police, unquote. Basically, he was casting doubt on the accusations against her by saying the police couldn't find clear evidence. This was, at best, misleading. By saying the police didn't find clear evidence makes it sound like the police department made that conclusion, and they did not. The investigators took the case to the DA before the deaths. They thought there was clear proof to prosecute. You want to take a wild guess which assistant district attorney decided not to charge Kathleen at the time? It was Brinkhart. Did he tell that to the jury? No, he did not. The jury and the defense were also not told the extent of Robert Rupert's criminal record because Brinkhart only disclosed 12 out of 28 convictions. The jury and the defense also didn't know that a different DA from Butler County told Brinkhart that Robert was both unreliable and mentally unstable. They didn't hear that Robert wrote to the DA asking for a deal from the beginning And when he tried to back out when the deal he was offered wasn't good enough, Braincart threatened him with prison if he didn't come through. And as for the amount of communication between Braincart and Robert Rupert, Braincart told the court that Robert sent two letters, and then he produced three because apparently he was mistaken in court over how many letters there were. But the truth was that there were six letters total, and the three letters withheld happened to be the ones that undermined Robert's credibility the most. Funny how that worked out. In one of the letters, Robert offered to inform on a different inmate in a different case, if it would help, And yet another letter included even more wrong information. In that letter, Robert said Pete told him he used a semi-automatic pistol, which was not correct. And he said Pete had admitted that he intercepted Kathleen's daughter's mail from the post office after the shootings, which was impossible because, for one thing, Pete didn't work at the post office anymore. And for another, he was in custody four and a half hours after the 911 call. So the motion from Pete's new team that came out of this investigation accused Brinkhart of misleading the jury and the defense in regards to Kathleen Schroll's circumstances and about information pertaining to jailhouse informant Robert Rupert. They then went a step farther and accused him of suborning perjury. At trial, Braincar asked Robert if there had been an attempt to interview him between August 2009, when he first wrote to the DA claiming to have information, and December 2009, when he made a statement. Rupert said no. 
Brancart knew this was false. He called and or emailed Robert's attorney to discuss his cooperation on four separate days in late August into September. Brancart also asked Robert questions pertaining to his most recent criminal case as though the case was closed, which gave the impression Robert couldn't be testifying for leniency because the case was done with. But it wasn't. It was still pending, and Brancart knew that. And, of course, they now have Robert Rupert, all these years later, admitting that he made it up to get time off his own sentence. He lied, which should have been obvious to everyone from day one, and in my heart of hearts, I believe it was obvious, yet they put him on the stand anyway. In October 2020, Pete's attorney filed a motion to vacate his conviction and included all of this information. That motion, around 200 pages, was a major source for this episode. The motion argued that it didn't really matter if the prosecution failed to disclose the information, which was a Brady violation, or if his trial attorney failed to discover it, which would have been ineffective assistance of counsel. The truth was that if the jury had all of the admissible evidence in front of them, they never would have convicted Pete. In November 2020, Wyandotte County District Court Judge Bill Clapper vacated Pete's conviction and had strong words for the people who put Pete Coons in prison. Judge Clapper listed all of the things the prosecution failed to disclose, like Kathleen's issues with, well, everything, and the evidence that Robert Rupert was not a credible witness. Not only did they not disclose it, they purposely hid the information. As for the ineffective assistance of counsel argument, Judge Clapper basically said he couldn't rule on it. He turned it around on the state. He said that the prosecutorial misconduct was so rife here that he couldn't even evaluate the defense's performance. He said it straight out. Prosecutorial misconduct is what convicted Pete Coons. Not the truth and certainly not ADA Ed Brinkhart's passion for justice. To me, it looks like the DA's office put winning first and sold out their integrity for it. So Pete Coons' conviction obviously was overturned. The new district attorney announced that they would not be seeking a new trial, and they were dropping the murder charge. The reason? Pete Coons was innocent. Pete was then free to go after 12 years in prison for a murder that wasn't even a murder. Pete returned home to his wife, children, and grandchildren who all stood by him, but Pete wasn't well. It's not news to most of you, I'm sure, that the healthcare in the U.S. prison system is substandard. It actually shortens people's life expectancy, and not by a little. Every study done on this is consistent, but to quote one, a Michigan study found that the average life expectancy for inmates sentenced to life is 58.1 years, nearly 20 years lower than that for the general population. And for those who were sentenced to life while still in their teens, it's actually 50.6 years. This is lower than the life expectancy in the Central African Republic, which is the country with the lowest life expectancy in the world. There was another study that found that for every year in prison, life expectancy drops two years, which does make sense when we see that those who are sentenced to life younger also seem to die younger. All that to say, Pete Kuntz was not properly diagnosed or treated for cancer while behind bars. In February 2021, Pete was hospitalized and diagnosed 
with stage four lung cancer, and he only had days to live. After 108 days since his release, just three and a half months of freedom, Pete Coons died on February 21st, 2021. He was 64 years old. In June 2021, Pete's estate was awarded over $825,000 in compensation for his wrongful conviction, money that could never and will never make up for the time that Pete lost with his family. This was frankly a case that never should have gone to trial. In my opinion, the police and ADA Ed Braincart decided Pete Coons was guilty and they knew their case was weak. They should have stopped to consider that maybe, just maybe, the reason they couldn't find evidence against Pete was because he didn't do it. And they robbed Pete not just of 12 years of his life, they put him into a system that doesn't respond appropriately to health concerns, and that contributed directly to his premature death. They did that to him. The people who paid for it were Pete, his family, the loved ones of Carl Schroll who saw his murder wrapped up in a miscarriage of justice, and the taxpayers, who are ultimately the people who pay out these wrongful conviction settlements. Now, if there was any justice left to be had in this case, Ed Braincart would face consequences for what he did. But if you Google Ed Braincart, you will see that he is currently a senior assistant attorney general for the state of Kansas. He has retained his job through the uncovering of his practices in the Pete Coons case. You will see articles and op-eds calling for some reckoning for him, but as our system now stands, prosecutors are nearly untouchable. He cannot be held legally responsible for what he did. Based on comments made in that Dateline episode I referenced earlier, it does sound like there may be an ethics complaint against him. I have not been able to verify that or where it is in the process. So far, it hasn't led to any public consequence or loss of his law license, which is pretty much the consequences he would be facing. So Pete's children are doing the next best thing to holding Ed Braincart personally responsible by trying to make it harder for those like Braincart from doing what he did. They are fighting for Kansas to pass House Bill 2366, which would establish a new process prosecutors would have to go through when using jailhouse informants. Among the new requirements, there would be a pretrial hearing to determine the reliability of the witness before allowing it at trial. This is something that is already done in cases where there is a question of the witness's reliability, like when you have children testify. So this is not reinventing the wheel. It's acknowledging that jailhouse informants are not always reliable and using an existing process to hopefully account for that. We clearly cannot trust everyone to do the right thing because they super promised they would do it when they accepted the job. For some of them, why bother being honest when you can keep getting better jobs in spite of your integrity issues? It is falling on the shoulders of Pete Kuntz's family, the people left with the aftermath of his wrongful conviction, to fight for the next person, to protect the next innocent defendant who has a prosecutor who has decided to win at all costs. When the system won't fix itself, the families impacted are the ones who have to do it. 
If you live in Kansas, please consider calling or emailing your local representative and telling them you support House Bill 2366 or any similar bill they can get to a vote that protects the integrity of our courts. I will leave a link to openstates.org in the episode description box, which is very helpful for finding your representative. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 